Hi, and welcome to Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Felt. A cancer diagnosis is one of the hardest slap in the face imaginable. All of a sudden, you have to become an expert in cancer and its treatments because your life depends on it. Oncologists, family and friends are pushing you towards chemo, radiation, surgery, yet you feel there are additional solutions out there. You don't feel confident in that only traditional therapies will take care of it. You may, as I have, seen family or friends quickly go downhill from harsh medical treatments. There is a better way. I invite you to listen to stories from real people fighting cancer successfully through powerful, integrative, and holistic methods. Learn what they did. This is my gift to you to make the learning curve less steep after your diagnosis. The information in this podcast could save your life as it has others. Well, today I have the pleasure of having Chuck Rinker with me today. He is the uh, the creator and, and owner of the company uh, Personas, uh, using AI intelligence to uh, to support the the a patient's journey in in healthcare and in many other areas. But it in the journey of getting to the the place where you're at now, you yourself were were battling with cancer correct yeah and dr michael i appreciate you having me on today because it, it is a topic that's become a lot more personal than it was five years ago my wife is a two-time breast cancer survivor and i myself am late stage colon cancer survivor and as we were focusing our digital avatars into commercial and retail a lot over the last five years as you can imagine we have a little different motivation and um, um we've now been focusing our AI avatars on relating and helping those patients through that digital journey and being more of a patient advocate, um, focusing a lot on the clinical trial space um, 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 where we're early in that process. And our goal here is to, uh, you know, help improve outcomes in whatever manner we can, but taking it from a patient perspective, uh, not an HCP perspective. What I'd love to to kind of hear is because a lot of people, as they get diagnosed, they they go through their journey of, of trying to understand their disease, trying to understand in regards to what therapies they should should do, uh, also the prognosis of their disease and and how effective are the therapies that I'm going to receive? Am I going to live? Am I going to die? I mean, there are all these different things that an individual is is dealing with as they are then diagnosed with cancer. So you got to have that journey on your side, and I think. The additional value is that, you know, from your perspective, this is you with your company, you're able to then kind of analyze, I believe, this journey a little bit uh, better, I would say, in a way, because that that is your profession to kind of analyze these different, different steps. And then how can we make this journey better for individuals? So as you analyze your own journey, can, can you kind of describe your frustrations and then we can move them towards solutions as you were seeing no a great great framework and great perspective um um just as a little background we, we have as a company been working with uh unc health and uh rti on, on many trials over almost a 12 maybe close to 15 year period so we've always been involved in clinical trials at some level with data analytics and gathering and all this, the, the stuff that us software geeks, as pointy-headed software geeks do. But what really hit me after my wife's diagnosis and my diagnosis and um, 
Um, when I jumped on the internet, like everybody does and start trying to figure out, you know, are you going to live? You're going to not live. What are your chances? What, what's, what's going on? What, what really, you know, it kind of hits you like a brick wall. And when people say your blood runs cold, it really does. So we started looking at it and I found that I was inundated with inaccurate information, inundated with not properly vetted information, just everything you could read and everything imaginable. And the outcomes data that was available, even when I did research with the SEER database and all directly, you know, when you get there, you're up till three in the morning doing all your own personal research and kind of becoming, as I say, an honorary oncologist <laughs> as much as you can be. It dawned on me that everything out there is based, obviously, on improving outcomes of cancer treatments and the outcomes when I actually settled down and took a more realistic approach to how to combat this and beat this really started looking at the differences in the outcomes that happen so rapidly in innovative healthcare that the data I was provided and the clinical trials I was looking at um, um, were, were sometimes decades old. So I started going, okay, well, if personas is really good at human communication and patients get thrown into this tornado of thoughts and information overload, how could you improve the outcomes? How could you improve that patient journey? And so we started taking this concept of um, um, AI avatars, which uh, just rolling back a little, and I know I get a little long-winded. The company I started um, was formed out of a bunch of game developers. I was a director on the EA Sports Madden and NCAA football, football franchise, worked on some fighting games and fantasy games. My CTO had developed and architected some large-scale systems and scoring systems for the gaming industry. So we considered ourselves experts at human engagement, meaning if we can get, I, I try to tongue-in-cheek use this word, but if we can get millions of kids addicted to playing our video games, why can't we get patients and people addicted to their own healthcare journey? So that was kind of the stick that we used when we started creating this product line that we call iHealth Assist, which is this line of healthcare assistance based on this personas digital personality product. So that's really kind of what led us into how can we improve outcomes for cancer patients? How can we get them properly information, vetted information and all? So we've just now spent probably the last two, probably less than two years repurposing some of our more commercially focused efforts around retail and uh, hospitality and um, focus it more into the healthcare sector. And that's kind of what brings me here and why I'm very appreciative for you giving me a, a, an audience here to, to, to showcase what we can do to improve the patient journey, especially as it relates to uh, cancer survivors and people going through initial diagnosis and their, their cancer journey. So how what what can an individual then as as a as they're going through this journey I how would this because um, people always they get that scared you know you human interaction we love human interaction and you know if we are we replacing human interaction uh, in healthcare and am I then going to be more distant from people that care about me uh, how 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 can that become how can that be overcome? That's a that's a, uh, an amazing question and one that as much as we claim to be the experts, we haven't even solved. And that's going to be a problem um, that's going to roll out in my mind over a, a long period of time as people become 
more receptive to the concepts of digital humans or digital avatars. We call ourselves an avatar and there's differences we'll talk about later as need be. But what it really boils down to, to me, is you talked about human interaction. Constantly AI and everything you learn about the digital patient journey becomes more and more about using your mobile phones, more and more about using kiosks, more and more about going onto your EHR systems and looking up your health records, more about using the MyChart and scheduling your appointments. And all that is very, to your point, impersonal. Now, since we haven't tackled everything, we've focused in on that patient journey as it relates to clinical trials a lot. We do have a primary focus in there um, and also about how patients experience their point of care. So what I mean by that, and to answer your question directly, is with let's take the point of care. Patient gets recently diagnosed or even other, other disease states, and they show up at a hospital or a healthcare facility, and they're in a stressed environment, they're in an unfamiliar environment, usually they're in a huge environment. We all know our frontline workers and our HCPs are taxed to the limit right now anyway. And the first thing someone does is walk around, you know, me, the MD Anderson Center and go, hey, where am I supposed to be? Imaging's on the seventh floor, where's that at? How do I get there? There's seven, ele eight elevators, you know, and, and where you're at. So this concierge, uh, eye health assist concierge will greet these uh, patients and visitors and you can pick your language. We can speak up to 148 languages. Well, probably more by now. We, we partner with Microsoft. We've been partnering with them since about 2018. So not only do we allow patients of different diverse backgrounds and languages, even sign language, we actually can deliver in sign language. You walk in here, you can ask a question. Hey, my wife's going to be a while. Where can I get a cup of coffee? Uh, I'm supposed to be at radiology by 10 and it's 9.56. How do I get there? So this this peak, this avatar will greet you and say, how can I help you? And you'll ask, how do I get to radiologies? Or I need to fill my prescription. And then it'll say, oh, well, you need to go to the pharmacy. The pharmacy is over here. Pop the QR code, pass it up. So it helps expedite and gets them the information they need. It greets them in a very um, um, approachable avatar. And, and we'll get into the philosophy of that. I mean, I use that term very carefully because people know and compare personas to what we call digital humans. We're not about digital replication. We're not about I mean, human replication. We're not trying to replace humans. We're about human communication. How do we teach technology to communicate with our patients and to keep that human connection and that human bond um, um, throughout this digital journey that's become more and more impersonal? So a little long-winded answer, but it's, until you see it, it's hard to get the insights into what we're really trying to pull off here. And it's really about maintaining a human connection, maintaining human communication, and teaching all this cool technology that's coming out how to communicate as a human, not teaching humans how to learn all these new technology tools. So almost sounds like, obviously, as an individual, yes, you you'd love to be able to you know, greet, greet people and, and be caring and loving. But as we are having more stress on the healthcare system, we're then needing uh, to develop tools to make that a little bit more e efficient and also user-friendly, and then also bring uh, make sure that the people that are part of the healthcare system that they are more focused on the kind of the know-how 
uh, where they're they're more you you need to be a little bit more specialized and then uh, work with the patients on that level. Some more of the kind of mundane components can then be used, you know, for these avatar individuals, you know, and and so that way your experience is is faster, quicker, less frustrating, more ed- educated. Uh, I mean that that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you nailed it, and you use a word that I use a lot. Um, 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 and you keyed right in on the word mundane. Uh, as we mentioned, mundane is a repetitive task that requires a certain amount of knowledge, but it's not the creative, innovative thinking that humans do. So you nailed something I haven't even got to, which is removing some of the repetitive tasks. And what we find in, um, is when we're really trying to convince the community, the healthcare community, that we're not trying to replace healthcare workers. We're trying to take that mundane obligation off of their plate so they can do the high value personal contact with their patients. Instead of turning around and asking how much is parking 20 times a day, or where do I need to go to check for get my security badge, or how do I find the ER department or whatever the case is, um, um, that's being pulled off. And speaking to those concerns or comments you had about operational efficiencies of our healthcare um, um, facilities in the U.S. and in Europe, we actually are doing some work with the NHS and deploying one of these at some of the NHS trusts outside of London right now as well. It's really about that operational efficiency. What can I do? What can a digital human that can relate in any language, have a diverse appearance, uh, even sign language, do to relieve some of the burden of our healthcare staff? our hospital staff, of our HCPs. The last thing you need is a, a heart surgeon walking down the hall, getting ready for surgery and having somebody ask them where they can, you know, take a smoke break out in the lobby. Uh, that's not an efficient use of their time. So that mundane, repetitive task um, that you attribute to um, improving operational efficiencies is exactly um, um, what we're trying to focus on. Let humans do what humans are good at. We're good at creative, we're good at innovation, good at that personal bonding and connection and let's keep that high value contact at the human level let's pull that mundane down and improve our efficiencies without losing that human connection the the concern nowadays and i'm sure this has been asked a lot is obviously with with the advent of things like chat gpt jasper and and so forth all the different AI technology that is is learning, you know, on its own, so to say, and then it's it's learning more and more with the input as you know humans are using it more, and then it's learning from its own behavior. So how does you know this persona technology? How is that tapped into that type of uh, AI learning? Yeah, you've been doing your research. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, there's a term out there that we uh, kind of another tongue in cheek term called hallucinations. You know, chat GPT and open AI type implementations that attempt to interpret and use the concept of machine learning to create responses to a large amount of data does lend itself to a certain level of hallucinations, whether it's 1% or 10% or a fraction of a percent, doesn't matter. It still happens to be. Um, a byproduct of using these generative AI. We use that for operational efficiencies and getting a production team through, but we use the concept of what we call active learning, not machine learning. Uh, I I take credit for that. I shouldn't. That's a Microsoft (laughs) term. Active learning. What it means from our perspective 
is we can generate those initial responses and all, but they have to be vetted. I alluded to earlier, might have been even before we were on camera, Dr. Michael, there, about vetted information. You don't want non-vetted information, definitely not in our clinical trial implementations, and probably not even in your public-facing, uh, like hospital eye health assist, what we were just talking about for patient engagement. So with the active learning, we can generate efficiently those responses, but before we consider those vetted and information that we're going to authorize to be disseminated, we work with typically like for this hospital experience, we would work with the patient experience team. And then we would go to them and say, hey, here's the information we're gonna tell our avatar to deliver. And that's not gonna be generated on the fly. We're gonna generate it efficiently upfront, but then we're only gonna say, okay, now we're approving this response. And this response is now approved. So that's an active learning. I mean, there's an active role with the patient experience of the human into that piece. Now, while you're talking about that, when we're talking about operational efficiencies and the generative, where the generative piece comes in and is very helpful is if let's say we've put one of these eye health assist at um, a hospital, just to pick on that a little, we'll talk about clinical trials later because we do have a passion for that as well. Um, but with the hospital, if someone comes up and says, hey, I'm looking for a good steak around there, or I need to stay for an overnight stay, where's that local hotel? Um, we might not have thought about that as a patient experience team. So that avatar doesn't have an answer. It's not going to go out there and make it up and say, hey, go go to go, go the Hilton. Um, you know, it, it, you don't want it to do that. So what it will do is tell us, tell our client success team that we have patients asking for this information. And what she'll initially say is, I'm sorry, I can't help you. or don't know the answer to that. And then we can say the information desk is over here, or we can text a message to someone on duty or send an email and say, you know, someone's looking for this help. But what we also do is we store that into our client success records. So then when we get back in that active learning cycle I was talking about earlier, we would sit with the patient experience team and say, hey, here are seven things that your patients asked for last month that we haven't told, we haven't, we haven't vetted the response yet. So let's focus on what our patients are asking for. So what it does is it gives you some very um, um, thorough and active insights into what your patient's asking for. Not what we sit around and go like with a typical touch screen. And we do touch up, by the way, I'll, I'll touch on that briefly, but uh, um, um, in a second, but if you're giving someone a mobile phone, or a touchscreen kiosk and hit this button, you're making the assumption that you know all their options. Pick option A, B, or C. So I can deliver those analytics to the team and say, you know what, 70% of people said A, 20% said B, 10% said C. However, with a active loop and this active learning loop we're talking about in this generative AI piece, we can now come to you and give you insights into information that you didn't even know you didn't know. And, and that's the that's the insight that now we're getting direct feedback from the patient, not asking them, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how did you think this did? And what else would you like to see? It's that, that it's, it's the passiveness of listening to what you're saying to me and what you're asking me and just listening without any active involvement and then providing that information back to the team and the ins and it really just gives you that insight into what the patient really wants to be. And and it still has the understanding like you know with the open eye open AI 
uh, has a training in how language is created or how you know what words are supposed to follow you know what the meaning of of those words and so it can sentences that's communicated then to uh, these personas can then be done in a variety of ways so it's not a a specific uh, pattern that an individual has to communicate with them but the context will uh, will be what will drive the response Absolutely. Yep. Yep. You're, you're, you could, you could, you could sell personas tomorrow. <laughs> um, cause that's exactly what we use that for. And the generative AI will go out there. Cause if I'm asking for, like, for instance, we mentioned we're doing work with NHS trust. We're doing work in the U S. So if you want to say, I want to use the restroom or where's the restroom? How do I get to the restroom? Um, let's be a little crass here. I, I just, I got to go. Um, in the UK, it's usually the use of word toilet, you know, where's the toilet? How do I find the toilet? So there's an infinite number of ways you can ask for something. And I'll, I'll use a little less crass example. When I talked about um, the pharmacy, um, you don't have to say, where is the pharmacy? You can say, how do I get to the pharmacy? Wait, I need the pharmacy. I need my prescription filled. Hey, someone told me I need to get my prescription filled. So asking the question, I need my prescription filled by using that natural language processing and that um, um, generative AI, we can interpret. Matter of fact, we'll even suggest alternatives to increase the confidence that we know what you're asking, but they call it a confidence factor. So if someone says, I need to fill my prescription, we've probably programmed it enough that it'll say, okay, well, we're 75% confident that person's looking for the pharmacy. But if we want to improve that from a patient perspective, we can use generative AI and it can suggest other examples and say, well, you know what? You might want to create a synonym for prescription and pharmacy. So meaning they kind of relate together. So that kind of generative AI will create that association. And then we can go, no, that's not right. Or yeah, hey, that is right. And then if we say it is right, next time around, when someone asks that question, we'll probably have a 99 plus confidence factor. So yes, um, um, that was a little geeky explanation on how all that works, but it, it does associate this new world of generative AI and open AI and chat GPT, but how we use that in an active learning cycle so that at the end of the day, at least within our healthcare products and our retail and commercial may be different, but within healthcare, we want that confidence factor to be incredibly high and we want it to be actively vetted by our healthcare partners. And I, I'm curious also because I, I was looking through, you know, some of the videos that that you've done and talking about uh, the difference where you have kind of a, a humanoid. I mean, yeah, why 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 do you have like an avatar that looks more like a, a character, yeah, rather than somebody that looks like a human? You know, why 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 is that? I mean, uh, talk a little bit about that. The, um, um, ironically, there's some clinical trials about this, Dr. Michael, um, um, with the audience we're speaking, and I'm, I'm happy if somebody reaches out to me on LinkedIn or wherever, um, I'm happy to share them with them. Because um, what we find is when people go down the path and you see some of the, I won't call them competitors because they really are slightly targeted. Um, according to Gino Gardner, we got competitors in this digital human space. Um, but a photorealistic human um, does a couple things. There's this concept called uncanny valley. If you've never heard that term, um, a lot of people have, a lot of people have it. It's as we get things that are more and more human-like, we as humans are innately and 
tune with what a human really is you know that what the hair looks like what the follicles look like is there there's really an asymmetry in your face you know what is all the things that make us look human and if it's just a little bit off the the, the common term for uncanny valley is creepy factor um you see it in horror movies if my head turns a little too far more than it should or my fingers are a little longer than they should be or my eye movements are very jittery and my mouth isn't quite exactly the same it, it kind of creeps people out. And then even as we get closer and closer to the reality of almost exactly replicating a human, and I'm in, I've been in gaming space for umpteen years, um, um, so I'm very in tune with the 3D technologies. We actually, back in 2013, we've probably been doing this longer than anybody. We've been doing this since 2013. We used to go down that photorealistic realm, and we kept getting, well, 80% of people thought it was cool. But 20% of the people were getting a little creeped out, saying, you know, wait, wait. And we're like, well, that's not the model we want. So being a, a devout follower of the genius of Walt Disney, as I'll say, I started looking at going, okay, what brand in the world, what, what engagement mechanism, what communication has the broadest reach, has the broadest approachability, has the most um, strong brand um, intimacy with their customers? Who creates that emotional bond? And nobody can deny it's Disney um, and it's companies like that. And it's what we did at EA Sports. I mean, I had over 10 million users of my game and I'm going, wait a second. Why did I have 10 million users? Not one person called me up and said, ooh, that football player looks off. Or that that, that orcan human that, that that's fighting over here in the arena it look, looks wrong because we, we're not associating it with trying to replicate a human. So the clinical trials I was referring to really talk about the believability, approachability, and trust of different personalities. If it's too robotic and it looks like a mechanical robot, you don't trust it. If it's too human, it creeps you out and you don't trust it. The sweet spot is those characters that are approachable, relatable. How come Walt Disney can make you cry when Bambi's mother gets shot? You know, there's nothing human about that at all, but there's intimately, it's at human at the heart level. And that's what we're trying to recreate with our avatars. So, and, and one other thing, I mean, you, we touched upon that quite a, quite a bit in regards to clinical trials. And obviously when dealing with cancer, a number of people get to the point, especially when you deal with stage four, uh, where regular type of therapies, the chemo, radiation, surgery, may not be viable options anymore. And so you need to then look at further and beyond you know, what what it is that that you would need and then go to places you're talking about MD Anderson, these kind of research institutions. So where would then personas fit in into that journey for a patient? I mean, because I'm I'm just curious as because I I I can see how this technology is being going to be implemented more and more. So I I feel it is good for individuals to then uh, know that you know if if this is something that they encounter that uh, it it's familiar and it's not something that is off putting and they. Uh, they're excited about that this is something that's going to help their journey. So where, where does personas play into that journey in regards to uh, clinical trials? Actually, we haven't got to that point where we're not in any palliative uh, type care environments and we're not really being uh, utilized in that fashion. This technology, as you know, is still um, 
consider bleeding edge. Um, um, definitely leading edge, if not bleeding edge. Um, where we've primarily focused is in that patient journey that's not quite as, uh, I'll call it critical. You know, we got to walk before we run. Um, so that's the short answer. However, the piece that we're focusing on just in the last probably uh, 12 months is we do have about 12 or 13 years of clinical trial work. And RTI has been very progressive and deploying these avatars in the clinical trial process, specifically within um, um, like clinical consent, patient consent and clinical recruitment. Um, and in that environment, um, when we talk about some of those trials I was alluding to about the approachability, believability, trustability, there's a couple of factors that play in. One of which is, is by being able to provide a consent mechanism where we're doing a trial called OBO trial, which is um, for opioid addiction. What, what is the outcome for the babies of opioid addicted mothers? And traditionally, that's a, a you know a, a, a mid-teen or, or, or a very young female, sometimes a minority group. Those are very, as you know, in the clinical trial world, are very underrepresented and very difficult to recruit with and very uh, difficult to get um, accurate information out. And let's be a little, hopefully not too politically incorrect. Let's say we have a young uh, minority female who's opioid addicted, and you got a doctor that looks like me, you know, 55 year old white guy with gray hair. They're going to feel either very judgmental or very, um, or very judged, not judgmental, that I would be judgmental to them. And they don't, might not divulge all the accuracy. They might have that a stigma or whatever the case is. What we find in one of those clinical trials is that by with our um, consent piece, at least, they're able to pick a character, whether it's a, um, um, a black female, whether it's a, uh, a, a white female or whether it's a Hispanic female. Um, and we choose female. And I'll, I'll get to that, touch on that briefly. And the research and all we've done in the trials show that from a trust factor, not a politically incorrect statement, but we got to face reality is women figures or avatars are considered about 75% more trustworthy than the male counterparts to both female and male populations. So we do tend to, we, we do male characters, we have male characters, but we tend to put the female characters forth because we need it to be trusting and forthcoming and approachable. So the point of this is that by providing the diversity and letting the patient select the avatar that's going to give them the information that's going to run them through the consent process. It's going to ask them the questions we need answered and to provide that information that we have a better success rate by letting them pick their avatar that they're comfortable with or knowing the demographic in advance. So if you're doing a recruitment piece and you know that, let's say we're trying to do a clinical trial for, you know, the Hispanic population, um, of, you know, 40 to 45 year old males, then we can work with their patient team. I mean, with their, their clinical trial team and design a series of avatars that would be relatable, um, um for that recruitment process. Um, so the, it, it's a really interesting phenomenon in, uh, of the psychology behind um, these avatars. And it's kind of, kind of point blank. It's kind of fun, but there's, a, there's a real, positive benefits. So getting people to think outside the box and to think about how do we scale healthcare? We have all these great technology tools. We've got recruitment process. We've got, you know, data mining, AI data mining for 
patient targets for patient, you know, demographic targets for patient re recruitment. We've got um, the, the, the ability to throw iPads out and have everybody go through a consent process. We've got kiosks for wayfinding. We've got all these databases. But you know what? That's this is this is really how do you get people? How do you um, make this technology adoptable for the population at large? Yeah, yeah. And and how um, the the question always and I, I love to ask you because you're you're obviously in this space, you know. So the question always becomes, you know, what is what is human? <laughs> <laughs> and and what is machine? Yeah, where 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 do we where do we draw the line in 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 your mind? Yeah, I, I'm I'm really curious because you obviously you you research studied this a lot, and I'm sure this question's been thrown at you a lot. Uh, yeah, if you get really deep and you talk about you know the Turing test for AI and whether AI is sentient and all that, I, I'm actually a little more pragmatic as a technologist who's been doing probably AI before people even knew what AI was. I did a lot of black ops work, military work, a lot in the financial sector, then a lot in the gaming sector. So I've been dealing with technologies and quite honestly, without sounding too callous and taking away any of the, um, um, let's say, amazing technology advances that all these companies have done, including ourselves. At the end of the day, it's still a rule-based system. You know, um, um, AI is um, um, very powerful. I personally look at it as a catalyst, not a replacement for human communication. Um, let's be honest, we've been doing search engines forever. We, nobody gets freaked out about doing a Google search. Chat GPT allows you to do that in more of a language, but it's really data mining a big data set and coming up with responses and generating responses based on bits of information that's learned. So um, I guess what I'm getting at, Dr. Michael, is that with proper ethical control, proper proper data mining, the data you feed in AI can be skewed. That's where the hallucinations I repeated or I talked about come in and leaving too much up to just a bunch of algorithms, however complex or simple they may be. At the end of the day, it's another tool. I jokingly tell people about the uh, story where, and as a, a physician, you might relate to this back when stethoscopes first came out. The physician population actually wanted to ban stethoscopes. You know, oh, I can't replace the sensitivity of human ear. You're just trying to replace the physicians. <laughs> you know, this is just, and you're looking at it going, wait a second. The, the, the physician population was concerned about a stethoscope, but for their time, that was this new tool. So I encourage people to get rid of this fear mongering by going out and watching, you know, the iRobot movie or watching too many Terminator reruns. Um, AI does what we ask it to do. AI is an incredibly powerful tool that can go from diagnosing mammograms to improving communications with the patient population. It's just a tool. So that's my perspective on it. What is human? AI is not a replacement for human. AI is a way to improve human communication, not replication. Yeah, and I and, and I agree with you. I mean, once you know, like Google search, uh, all of a sudden now people felt like you didn't need to 
have the knowledge anymore and, and you could cheat and you could just look it up you know, on the internet and uh, so education and then also how we operate within you know, our both social and, and business uh, roles uh, just had to adjust and we we just can then focus on other areas that does not involve having to go to the library and flip through those little white cards to see you know where the book would be and then you know find that book so it, it's shifted quite a bit since then you're absolutely 100 uh, percent agree I, I was laughing because you were talking about the white cards I'm, a, I'm an older gentleman i remember the old you know preaching the dewey decimal system you know how do you find books in the library using dewey decimal so no, you're absolutely right. It, it's a tool. Let's use the tool. That tool improves everybody's productivity. Um, um, and look at look at AI as a productivity tool. Don't fear it. Just learn how to utilize it. Um, there's a lot of questions that I'm not even an expert on um, about. You know, where, where where do the ethics come in? Where do you control privacy concerns? Where do you control um, 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 the moral? Uh, uh, questions if you allow generative AI to create too much of the responses. That's why we're currently taking an active um, learning approach instead of a machine learning approach. So there's a lot of those very, very deep subjects that are going to be rolling out as the adoption of, of AI and in particular AI avatars and human AI um, become more and more um, predominant in the space. But uh, we don't have those answers. We just got to be open-minded and um, um, clear on how to not misuse it like anything with power comes the ability for abuse of that power and it is a very powerful tool yeah wonderful well chuck i really appreciate you coming on and and talking about this powerful tool uh, i you know grateful for that your your journey with cancer and your wife's journey with cancer uh that that turned out in in a good direction you, you i know before the uh before we started the interview you you were uh you're discussing how you were you know thinking about you know, who am i going to give my company to and and you you thought you hear the word cancer and you you hear immediate death and uh you know obviously with good care that that is not the case anymore i am still here mr michael yeah <laughs> and i plan on being for a while with <laughs> So I do appreciate your time. It was an intriguing conversation and I can't thank you enough for uh, for inviting me on your show. Thank you so much. All right, take care. The information this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or treat any disease. If you'd like to know more about what my center offers, please visit thecarlfieldcenter.com. Please join us next week for another live consultation with a patient diagnosed with cancer on integrative cancer solutions with Dr. Carl Feldt.